We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. Men from Moto. Digital strategies with Travis Sowers and David Seville. Intellect, vast, cool, and unsympathetic. Broadcast to the world with the uncanny help of Mana Deprived and FaceToFaceGames.com. Greetings, people of Earth. We're the men from Moto, and you're listening to episode 80 to Blave. My name is David Seville, and I have Travis Sowers on the line with me again this week. How are you, sir? I am fantastic, David. How are you? I am good. I had a uh, a poker adventure this past weekend, and uh, it's setting me up quite nicely for our topic this week. Ah, nice. Did you win a lot of money? No, I lost all my money because it was a tournament, and I made lots of mistakes, but it was a fun time, and I learned a lot of... uh, relearned a lot of poker lessons so if i get back into it again i will uh be in a better place it's interesting to see the parallels between magic and poker um and uh also just the things that aren't even the same at all um so it's kind of cool to reconnect with my old friends and then come back to magic and enjoy it in a slightly different light you know what i suppose the upside too is that since you were playing with canadian dollars they're basically worthless anyway i mean all it's all relative right so canadian dollars compared to canadian dollars is a lot of money but Canadian dollars compared to everything else is maybe not so much. Yeah. But how about you? Uh, how was your week this week? It's good, man. I've been enjoying the rotation of Dominaria on Quick Draft on Arena. Uh, played, gosh, 170-ish games and finished with a 69.8 win percentage, just shy of 7% in best of ones. Uh, Triple M and Ket is up next. And I'm curious if that's going to be able to keep me entertained for a week or if I'm going to have to dip back over to Magic Online and try some M19 again. I, I don't remember loving Triple M and Cat. I remember it being fun, uh, but I remember it getting a little stale because it was so aggressive. But maybe after dirtling around with Slimefoots for a week, I'm, I'm kind of ready to cast some Gus Walkers. Yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting to see how the people on Magic Arena approach that format because somebody like you with the experience that you have knowing the the type of format that it is particularly very aggressive and that gust walkers are kind of the truth um you might be able to just roll that format early and then bail off in a magic online with your profits <laughs> yeah maybe maybe we'll do that just crush noobs for three days and go hide exactly just uh just take your gems and run you know we can we can withdraw gems from magic arena right you can turn them into packs. You can't turn packs into gems, unfortunately, but you can turn gems into packs. I tell you what, if I hit 80% at any point, I'll just stop and go back to Magic Online so I can brag about it next week. That's the key. You got to lock your win rate down and then never play again. Yes. Yes. That is the strategy. Yeah, that's That works for me when I, when I reach my high level ratings. I just stop playing entirely. So, <laughs> so. I think we should start with the uh, a, a super quick update on the uh, arena. Not really state of the beta, but they announced a uh, an upcoming update next week, I believe it is, um, for Magic Arena. There'll be a state of the beta next week along with it as well. Um, but they announced some cool things, and they also announced that they're taking away um, an event. So uh, today's announcement was um, we're going to get Popper on, That's cool. uh, on Magic Arena, which is kind of cool. Like, There's a lot of people that have been kind of clamoring for Popper. I don't know what a standard popper environment looks like, but regular popper is quite popular. So it'll be interesting to see um, how people take to this. Uh, I'm certainly interested in checking it out. It'll give people kind of an opportunity to flex their deck building muscles in a way that uh, you can't really do anywhere else right now. So that's kind of cool. Basic Momir is also coming. That's a blast from the past. Yeah. So for those that don't know, Basic Momir on uh, Magic Online is... Um, you are given an avatar that has the ability to discard a card from or a land card from your hand, um, tap a bunch of mana, and then summon a random creature with the same converted mana cost that you tap your mana for. So if you tap for one, you can get elves, you can get other one drops, things like that. Um, and it becomes this game of attacking and blocking, kind of gambling in what kind of creature you're going to get, and also making decisions as to when do you play lands versus when do you discard lands to try to make creatures at what point do you start trying to curve out on your opponent 
Um, and then just hoping you don't spin a random phage off the top. What is he, like an 8-drop or something like that? Yeah, you don't cast 8-drops. They're probably going to do standard Momir, though, I would well, guess. Well, they, they have to do standard Momir because there's no way they can program all the other interactions in time. I would be, I'll be interested to see how it does. I don't think standard Momir will do very well. I think the card pool is just way too small. Like, when you, when you try to hit a 1-drop, you know with a very good you know there's a very good percentage you can get you know a solid one drop in like an elves or something like that because the pool of one drops is just so small samba um, ran the numbers today there's 57 one drops in standard oh is it really 57 yeah it was some absurd number i don't actually remember what the number was but he was like because like, as soon as he heard the announcement he's like so am i supposed to play this on one and try to hit an elf uh and he said i'll be back and then he, you know, he's the guy that does all our spreadsheets for the set reviews and everything. And he shows up and like, nope, you don't try to hit an elf. And I forget what it was. Maybe it was thirty-seven. Maybe it was twenty-seven. But it, it was enough that like you're, you're not guaranteed to get what you want to get. You don't hit an elf. I saw somebody post somewhere that you're guaranteed to get a Zakama on nine or something like that. Like that's the only nine drop. And uh, so it was basically a race to get to nine mana and then untap and win the game. That sounds like fun. Yeah, but I mean. We'll see how it plays out, right? You might be dead before that. So, yeah. I actually enjoyed Momir when I played it a lot on Magic Online. Um, it, it seems like a nonsense, stupid format, but what it actually allows you to do is really pay attention to what's on the board and just get a real solid grasp for you know attacks and blocks, which it, it, when I was just beginning to play Magic and Magic Online, that was really something that I needed. So I, I think some people might dismiss this as being too silly or not something that would make you a better Magic player. Momir actually made me a better magic player. It definitely helped me read the board state and also just read cards that I have never played against before. Yeah, that too. It's it's, it's kind, of, kind of almost like a cube that you go into blind. And if you're new to cube in general, you're going to be playing against a lot of cards that you have to read. Um, understanding interactions of cards, looking up rules, like how do these two cards interact? That came up a lot in Momir. So um, granted in a standard format, like... There's no real interesting interactions there anymore that we haven't already learned. Um, but if you're new to the game, I, I imagine if it's a free format, it'll be a lot of fun to play and, and learn how the game works. If it's a pay-to-play format, I don't think I'm interested at all. I don't think I can uh, pay to basically have random cards uh, that I have no control over. So I'll uh, I'll hope it's in the free queues. It'd be cool if it was. I'd spend a couple gold on it. I'm at least going to check it out. Yeah, for sure. Um the the downside of this upcoming update is that uh, they will be removing the best of three cons- competitive constructed queues. So this is the one that you pay gold or gems to enter and then receive a prize at the end. We'll still be able to do best of three in the ladder, um, but they have removed it basically just to see where the players go. Um, they said that they weren't getting as many players there now that you can play best of three in the ladder. And um, I imagine they're doing this just to collect data, just to see where those players go. Um, they said it could be back in the future. There's a lot of people voicing their concerns about it, saying that this is the way that they enjoy playing Magic and that it's fun for them. Um, we'll just have to see if those numbers are high enough for them to, to bring it back. I hope they do, because I think that I would much prefer best of three over best of one in any kind of um, competitive format. But the fact that nobody was playing it means that there's really no reason to keep it around. So I don't really know. We'll have to see where that goes. I know I don't play it because I don't want to sink my gold into that. I want to sink my gold into drafts. So I suspect that maybe that is where that difference came from is that uh, a lot of people that were playing that because there was nothing in the ladder. uh, Now they can play it in the ladder and just spend their gold on drafting instead of risking it in the, in the quick or uh, competitive constructed. Yeah. It it always sucks when they take something away, particularly something that had, I think a really good prize payout. Now it's no secret to anybody that's being, you know, paid any attention to me that I haven't really played constructed in ages, nor do I want to. But I, I did recognize the value proposition of, of competitive constructed. I, I wanted competitive draft to be closer to that. Um, so what I, I really wish had happened, they've been like, we're going to remove competitive draft and nobody was playing. That that would have been better news for Travis. Uh, so I'm, I'm sorry to see this for the people that are going to miss it. Uh, but there is still a way to play best of three. You know, currently for standard, you you don't have to spend money for it. You can complete your quests, and we'll see where it goes from there. One thing that I've always liked about Watsy, and I've mentioned this a hundred times on the podcast, but I'm going to keep banging this drum. They are better than anybody else in the digital card game market about organizing tournaments and having it in the software. 
Like Hearthstone has been out for years now and they still don't have in in client tournaments. It's all organized outside and it takes you, you know, hours, okay, minutes of research to go find this stuff. But you can't just sit down, click a button and be playing a competitive event immediately. And I, I, I have faith that Watsy will get that for us. We're still in the beta, so I'm, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt here and hope that they make something that will eventually make all of the constructed players happy. And I'm happy to see them experimenting. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm sure it'll come back if enough people voice their concerns. Um, maybe it's just time to get rid of the best of one cues, but I, I imagine that's very popular for uh, people that want to have something on the line but not spend a lot of gold for it. So, Yeah, um, that might actually be the answer is just get rid of best of ones. Magic was never really meant to be played that way. Yeah, I, th- I think... I think the arena needs to keep the best of ones to keep the games quick and fresh. And as people playing on mobile, eventually things like that, right? Like you're going to want quick games, but man, just, it was never designed for that. Just give us best of three and, and I'm sure the player base will follow, but I mean, I don't have those numbers. So who knows, who knows what, what their data is telling them, right? They're going to make decisions that um, make the sense, makes the most sense for the game. And uh, also they're going to make decisions that make sure that they can collect data about how people play the game. Right. And they're going to fix competitive draft. Hopefully soon. Yes. All right. Um, let's just hop right into our, our main topic here. So the episode title, To Blave. Travis, what does To Blave mean? It clearly means to bluff. Clearly. Um, so it's a throwback to uh, The Princess Bride for any of our younger listeners that might not understand that reference. Um, we wanted to do a bit of a uh, a deep dive topic this week. And uh, we chose bluffing and just so happened that I was playing poker this weekend. So it was kind of fresh in my mind, kind of getting back into that mindset of playing a game where bluffing was a lot more frequent than it is in Magic. Um, so I'm, I'm feeling fresh. I feel like I can talk about this topic quite a bit. And it's something that I've kind of been exploring off and on in Magic in general. Um, the thing about Magic is there's not necessarily a lot of opportunities to bluff. Um, that's just kind of the nature of the game. There's not... Uh, kind of the risk reward proposition of a bluff usually isn't there like it is in a game like poker uh, where you know you can there's always money on the line or there's always chips on the line if you're playing in a tournament there's always an opportunity to bluff um, and there's always an opportunity to show strength about your hand whereas in magic there's a lot more uh, kind of revealed information about the board your opponent has um, you know if you're tapped out or you have no cards in hand your opponent has a lot more information about the game state than let's say in poker where your cards are always hidden let's say so um but there are opportunities to bluff in magic and we're going to kind of walk through kind of what is a bluff how do you bluff in magic when do you bluff in magic what are the different types um and then some other concepts that are key to bluffing just to make sure that you're getting kind of the maximum value out of out of your bluffs and your gameplays and trying to push those edges so that you're winning more games against equally matched opponents i was also particularly excited to explore bluffing as a podcast about digital magic, because I've, I've heard people and read articles and seen videos about people talking about how to bluff in paper magic. Uh, but we're talking about magic online and arena here. It, it's not about you look them in the eye and attack with everything. Like none of that matters here. We're not talking about Jedi mind tricks. We're talking about solid game mechanics. And I do want to do a bit of a preface here. If you're listening, listening in and learning about bluffing, this is good information but if, if if you're a you know 50 55 win percent player on arena right now and you you want to get to a higher level this is going to get you a percent good solid technical play understanding draft playing to the board you've got a lot more percentage to get there but i did want to cover this topic because i've had people ask me about it on stream i've i've had people watch me make a bluff and then ask why i did it and I, I wanted to be able to explain that and have this out there so so that people who are like, hey, I'm at, you know, 65%. How do I get to 66? How do I get to 65.5? Maybe this is your 0.5. Yeah, absolutely. And knowing about bluffs, too, will let you catch bluffs as well. Um, so I'm going to speak a lot from the poker perspective because I think, um, like I said, I think there's a lot more opportunity to bluff there. Um, but just knowing that your opponent or knowing that somebody is capable of bluffing lets you potentially call those bluffs a little more so when i say call i mean like uh you you figure out your opponent's bluffing and you call their bluff that's the that's the term from poker and you you say okay i don't believe you and you make the decision that they don't want you to make whether it be blocking or something like that um so 
where was I going with this? Knowing that your opponent is capable of bluffing can be just as advantageous as being able to bluff yourself. Um, but then once you're on the same level as your opponent, then you start to get into that next level where we're going two or three levels deep. It's like, well, they know I could bluff, so I'm not going to bluff, but then they know that I might not bluff, so then I'm going to bluff. We're not going to go that deep. We're just going to go level one on this one where, you know, basically how to bluff, how to get over that first hump of playing straight up, you know, my opponent always knows what's in my hand magic because of the way that I play. So clearly I can't choose the cup in front of me. Oh man, that was the same movie. Yeah, I totally didn't think about that. So clearly, yeah, I cannot choose the cup in front of you. Mm-hmm. Same. All right. Now. So you and I sit down at a game of magic, whether it be online or paper. And let's say you and I both have a an equal win rate. So we sit down, we have equal decks, equal win rate expected over the, the, the long term of magic. How do you gain an edge against me in a game of magic? Where are you gaining those extra percentage points if all things equal... We're equally skilled and we have equal decks and, you know, we have equal opening hands. Where are you going to get your advantage on me? I think there's basically two ways to get it. And and one is to get you to make a mistake or be ready to capitalize when you make a mistake. And two would be to leverage anything I have at instant speed, a.k.a. hidden information that you don't know about to blow you out. If you attack with a high value creature and I have a combat trick to get rid of it, or maybe it's a set that has some variant of Assassinate that's in M19 now. What is that one called? Take Vengeance. At, take Vengeance. So, like, I need to get you to race me so that I can take Vengeance, your your bomb. Uh, so, like, I, I can leverage that hidden information, or I can try to capitalize on a mistake that you've made. Yeah, and I, th- I think both of those are kind of mistakes. It's just one is a mistake where I may have known information, and one is a mistake where I, I have unknown information. So it's possible for me to make what I think is the correct play, but it was actually a mistake given the hidden information. And I think those are two very different things, but I think we can classify them both as mistakes or, um, you know, maybe misplays. It's just one is an error and one is a, one is a forced error and one is an unforced error. Um, and I think the ones that are unforced errors are kind of the, the most common ones, right? So like you're hoping that I misplay, maybe I mistap my land Maybe I uh, make a mistake sequencing or something like that, or I don't read you for a card. Um, and then, of course, the, the hidden information, which is really the, the crux of all of this, is that hidden information. Bluffing is a way to make your opponent make a play that is not optimal. And when I, when I say not optimal, I mean, like, they might not be making a mistake. Again, they might be making an, 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 an error that is... They might be making a forced error, right, where... Um, I, I make a play where I, I don't want them to do something and they don't know that that would be a mistake. So they go the other way thinking that it's correct. So I have correctly induced them into making a mistake. They just don't know that they've made a mistake yet. And I think that's where you get it. That's where you get where you have equal players. That's where you get those extra percentage points is forcing your opponent to do things that you want them to do specifically. A, a very simple example of this. I've just been playing Dominaria. If you have that stupid candle out, and I know you're going to kill the next big thing that I play, so maybe I play the second best big thing I've got in my hand so that you kill that, and then I play the best thing. I got exactly. you, but you may not even know that I got you. Maybe you think I top-decked the second one. And then if you want to you know, clearly not choose the cup in front of you, what if you play the best one first? And see if and, your your opponent's willing to fire it off. So like you can go so many, you can go as as deep as you want to with this. But I want to give you like as we go through this, like let's talk about how how and when to bluff. Like why should you bluff? When mm-hmm. should you actually do it? Because I I think as someone who plays you know seven eight nine hours of Magic in a day, I probably bluff once or twice a day. And then there's there's variations of bluffs. Like some of them are. Uh, I think you call these semi-bluffs, where I attack in and I could do a thing I really don't want to, and then I'm happy when they don't block so I can do the other thing. Yeah, yeah. Semi-bluffing is more prevalent in magic than actual, like, hard bluffing, I would say, or, like, full-on bluff. So semi-bluff is where you're kind of okay with either outcome. So um, from a poker perspective, you would semi-bluff, or a semi-bluff is, let's say, you, you bluff at a pot, and you don't have a made hand. So let's say you don't have a pair or anything like that. You're just you're just bluffing that you actually have a hand. 
But what you have is a draw, so you have the potential for a big hand. And in that case, you're okay taking the pot down because you don't have a hand yet. But if your opponent ends up calling you, you still have the opportunity to get there by the time the hand is over because you might hit your draw, right? So you're kind of okay on either outcome, and those are the safest bluffs to make as long as you resolve yourself to being okay with either outcome. And in in your example there, where let's say you attack a 2-2 two -two into, into their 3-3, three -three, and you have a combat trick, and you have a 3-drop in your hand. And you're like, well, if they block, I can use my combat trick and save my guy. If they don't block, I get to play my creature, and I'm kind of okay with both outcomes, right? And you're locking yourself into either play based on what your opponent does, right? So if they block, you're locked into using that combat trick, but you're kind of okay with both because both scenarios are fine. Both scenarios leave you with a board presence, right? Um, and on one end, your opponent has lost their creature. On the other end, you know, they took some damage and you increased your board presence. So both scenarios are okay. In that scenario, you also let them know I have something if they didn't block, which is why I nearly always block in that scenario. They won't know what you have, but they'll know that you have something. So you're kind of also saying, I'm willing to give away the information that I have a combat trick, which might come up later in the game when they have instant speed removal. So like once you've, once you've sold that, or you actually have the combat trick, you kind of need to be aware that they could go for that. Yeah, exactly. So the goal of a bluff in magic again is to to make your opponent make a mistake or gain some kind of value um out of out of a play that you might not normally gain value out of so what are some opportunities or what are some things that you can gain when you're bluffing so one thing that you can do is you can you can gain life points or you can steal life points from your your opponent you can deal extra damage where your opponent didn't block when maybe they should have that's probably the most common goal of bluffing in limited magic anyway is to get extra points of damage through another goal of bluffing might be to remove a creature on your opponent's side of the board so you might bluff maybe a non-attack to induce an attack from your opponent so you can use a take vengeance or so you can use a combat trick defensively on your own for example um are there any other kind of goals that you have when you're bluffing in I magic mean, there's also the hail mary attack we're mm -hmm. like, you know, and this is one that I actually made today and somehow I managed to sell it. I don't remember what it was that my opponent played, but I casually just swung team into it because I'm like, I'm I'm not beating that. And if they block me here, I just lose the game. But if they don't, I might be able to scrape back into it. And they just took all the damage yeah, because uh, they were just like valuing the card too much. So like th that that's one of the things that I, I always work out in the equation is like, what do I have to lose? And I think when you were mentioning like, earlier the the value proposition just isn't here to bluff that much in magic is what do i lose versus what do i gain often it's just not worth it to bluff uh, so you get into that scenario of the semi bluff being a little better and an example there is if my opponent has you know you gave the example of a 3-3 and a 2-2 two -two. well what if it's a 4-4 four -four with awesome abilities and i have a combat trick that's just plus two plus two where i'm like i i'm gonna have to two for one myself to kill this if i attack in I've also got this three drop that I could play and develop the board, right? So like I can do one or the other, but not both. In that case, when I send my bluff, I'm attacking in and being like, I kind of don't want them to block because I really don't want a two for one myself for this, but I will if I have to, or I could play this creature afterwards. And at that point, I kind of don't care what they think I have because I feel like I got value out of it. So like, yeah. that's the biggest thing for me is, is juggle. Is, is it actually worth it to bluff in this scenario? Yeah, that's one of the key things to to a bluff in poker, magic, or anything really is the risk versus reward. Now, um, a really good example of this is so let's say I, I played I have the two one one goblins right, and my opponent has a one three druid, and we're on turn three, and I attack in here. So, if I attack in with those guys, and let's say I don't have a combat trick, so it's it's just a terrible bluff in this case because um, you know if my opponent blocks, I just stone lose a token. I am risking a creature that could potentially save me four, five, six life down the road if it jump blocks, um, or depending on what kind of deck I have, could do more damage in the future, uh, versus my opponent basically taking one damage. So am I willing to throw away a 1-1 one, one, if my opponent ends up blocking with their 1-3 druid, let's say, for one point of damage? Now, early in the game, that's not a lot. That's not very relevant. So you kind of have to step back and you have to think to yourself is like, 
is the bluff that I'm making, am I throwing this, this token potentially away for one point of damage, is that useful? But now you have to flip over to the other side, you have to look at your opponent's side and say, what's, their what's the chance that they're actually going to make that block given that they have a druid and they probably want to ramp to four? So you kind of have to weigh the risk versus reward. So if you think that there's no risk that your opponent blocks at all, that they're never blocking at all, 0% of the time, then you make that attack all the time because it's free. But as that scale starts to tip where you think that maybe they have a 50% chance to, to block or a 75% chance to block, now you have to weigh that against that one point of damage and you'll start to see that that type of attack doesn't make any sense, right? Now, let's say your opponent had like just the nut bomb creature on their side of the on the of, of the table on two mana and you're swinging in on turn three now you're probably looking at maybe they have a zero percent chance to block and now those attacks are much more likely to succeed so you have to kind of weigh that risk versus reward now if that risk or if that reward was let's say 10 damage right if they don't block let's say um so in your case scenario uh, earlier today where you did the alpha attack kind of the last ditch effort and you're trying to set yourself up to win the game on a future turn by dealing extra damage you know, the upside of that is that you can potentially take a game that you were losing and turn it into a game that you were winning. So the upside there for you is huge. And if your opponent thinks that they have the game locked in, they might not block because they're like, well, my opponent probably has something here. Blocking doesn't make any sense. I'm just going to take all the damage. So now you flip that scenario around where all the risk is on your opponent's side of the table and you're trying to improve your uh, what might already be a losing position on your side. So weighing that risk versus reward is very important. And as Magic players... You know, the the concept of expected value is kind of ingrained in us on, on Arena and Magic Online. You kind of have to start to do that in the bluffing scenario, too, is what is the expected outcome of this, and am I okay with that risk? And, you know, we talk some about playing to your outs, knowing what cards you have in your deck. Like, there's literal no risk to you if they've played a card that you can't beat in bluffing and attack into it. Because if, if it's something you're just not going to be able to handle, it... it, it it functionally doesn't matter. The game's already over. So why not give them an opportunity to make a mistake? Not a lot of people will. Um, I snap block when people attack in. Because I'm like, if, if I play around a combat trick now, I lock myself into playing around it for the rest of the game. And I can't really play around it. Because eventually we're going to have to block. like, Or I'm going to have to attack into you. Creatures going to bump into each other eventually. So like, I, I have a tendency to just snap call any attack and just block. Even if I'm stuck on lands, I'm blocking with my Druid of the Cowl. Because I'll draw more lands, and i got to get that trick out of your hand. But if if the, the, the downside for you is, well, they might block and I lose the game. Well, if, you're already, if you've already lost, and you know what's in your deck, and you're not beating this, then that's no longer a downside. You just got to let that one go and see if they're the, you know, 2% of people or whatever that are going to make a mistake because they're they're scared of what you might have. I managed to pull a game out of nowhere that I had absolutely no business winning because I had a fight fire with fire in the deck. Like when I cast it, I forget what my opponent's board was, but it was absurd. And I made an awful attack when they were 11 to try to get them to take one point of damage off of a sapperling. And all they had to do was block correctly. They didn't. They in fact had a removal spell and still took the one point of damage. And then I just slammed the fight fire with fire and they were dead. Like, mm -hmm. the, and, and chat's going nuts because they're like, you know, you lose the game if they block. I'm like, I'm losing the game anyway. This is the only shot we have to win. So, like, do that math and think about, is the game already over? If it is, see what you can pull out. Mm -hmm. the, the opportunity to bluff definitely goes up the later the game goes. Um, especially bluffing to play to your outs that's the key thing i think bluffs early in the game are far less effective um but i think good players can take those opportunities to try to get extra points of damage through i remember watching coverage of a gp and i think it was ben sec playing against owen turtenwald in a team limited event attacked in with like a 1-1 or a 1-2 or something like that early in the game um and owen didn't block and TBS just kind of like slammed his fist on the table. He's like, yes, I got that point of damage through. I bluffed him. Um, and it was kind of interesting to see that, that the pros kind of had it in them there. Um, but to also just see kind of that it didn't really have an impact on the game, that one point of damage in the long run. Um, but I think good players can take advantage of those multiple times and, uh, and kind of turn that around to their advantage in the long term. So keep that in mind. I think is in the mid to late game, bluffing is definitely more believable or more opportunistic than it is early in the game um one of the key things about 
bluffing and bluffing effectively is you have to be able to tell a believable story. And so the example of the combat trick, again, is the best one here, where if I attack in and I'm repping a combat trick, so I'm representing that I have sure strike, let's say, um, and I don't, and my opponent doesn't block and I deal that damage and then I play a three drop and my opponent, let's play, let's say plays a, a four, four on the next turn or something like that. And the next turn I don't attack in that automatically tells my opponent that I didn't have the sure strike. And now they can come, if they're paying attention, they can completely take me off that trick in general, right? Because, you know, I should still be able to attack my one ones or my two twos into that four, four and expect that my opponent will not block there because they will just lose their creature to sure strike. And so if I don't, I'm now I'm invalidating that entire story. So now I can no longer make that bluff going forward. Also, though, you have to be able to set that up. So a really good example of this is, um, you know, if, if I attack in and I don't have any mana left up that I can use those, that I can cast a certain combat trick with, obviously I'm not telling the correct story here and my opponent can just call. So I'm playing, I don't know what's a good example here, green-blue right? And I, I accidentally tap all my green because I'm playing Magic Arena and the auto-tap gets me. You can't bluff there. You can't bluff that you have a green combat trick there. Um, and there's obviously nothing in blue that will kill my opponent's creature on that in this attack. So the story there is immediately just not believable, right? So obviously those are two different extremes, but you have to be able to set up the bluff and make it believable so that you give your opportunity to the opponent for the opponent to pick up on that. That's the key here. If your opponent can't pick up on the fact that of what you're bluffing, then the bluff is essentially not effective at all because they're not paying attention to it and they're just going to make whatever decision they were going to make anyway. So one of the other key things to bluffing here is that you can't you can't bluff a, bla a bad player or you can't bluff a, a player that doesn't have the knowledge of what's in the format. And that's really important when you're, when you're trying to bluff combat tricks. So like, you know, you, let's say you go to a pre-release and you're trying to bluff attacks and combat tricks and things like that. Like just assume that your opponent's going to play straightforward in that scenario and always call your bluff or always make the, the, the decision that, you know, you don't want them to make when you're trying the bluff. Those type of bluffs are very, very risky, and they very rarely pay off. You really need to be able to bluff, if you're bluffing, you need to be able to bluff better players. Players, essentially, that would make the same play that you are making. Uh, players that are capable of bluffing are also capable of essentially picking up on those same bluffs. You know, that's one of the things that makes the untapped combat trick so good. Because, like, they can't get... You just have to block the darn thing and eat the combat trick. Because if you don't and they leave the mana up, you can get a read on it, but you still can't do anything about it other than have instant speed removal to interact with it. I love those combat tricks when we get them in green. But Dave's right. A, a, a new player or a very bad player is not going to notice that you're bluffing, and they're going to block anyway. A medium player is the one that you're most likely to get, because they're going to be the ones that are like, well, they might have a combat trick. I'm not going to block because I value my creature. And then a very good player is is probably just going to block and call you and be like, okay, cool. You got a combat trick. Let's get it out of your hand. And I do I do that all the time on Arena. And I'll, I'll say, let's go ahead and get Sure Strike out of their hand. And then they cast Sure Strike. And I move along with my life. Like, I've gotten to the point where I can kind of tell what combat tricks they have. And it is exceptionally rare that people just chump attack into stuff. Like every time I block, they have the trick. So like I, people aren't doing this and I, I don't, I really don't think you should be doing it very often. No, no. And when you, when you're playing poker, so I, I keep going back to poker here, but like I used to play poker with the same people day in and day out for years. Those are the type of people you can bluff, right? So it, it it's much more effective in in paper magic when you're playing against the same people over and over and over again because you can tell that story over multiple games over multiple friday night magics you can tell that long-term story in arena and magic online you're effectively anonymous so your opponent doesn't have that history of oh i've seen them make this similar play here before i, I know what's going on and so you're really just playing on a small amount of information which is why it's also harder to bluff i think anonymous players is because they don't have that history with you now, I think there is a bluff that you can use consistently throughout uh, Magic Online and Arena. And I think there's also something that people think is a bluff that you need to stop doing if you'd like to get better at, at Magic Online and Magic Arena. 
The bluff I think that you can consistently use and sell is one that David mentioned while we were doing the pre-show, and that's what you're representing by what mana you leave untapped. You want to walk us through kind of what's, what sort of things you can represent? I think the easiest one here is representing a counterspell, um, and in particular representing something like Cancel or something with double blue in the casting cost. So, And this is a story you can tell right from the get-go, um, basically from turn three or turn four on, depending on when you're casting spells on your curve. So what you can do is every time you have the opportunity to leave double blue up, or even just blue in general, if you're playing a format with S and Scatter, let's say, you do it. And the second you accidentally auto-tap the wrong way, or you make or you leave double black up instead of double blue, when you had the opportunity to leave that mana up, let's say, your opponent all of a sudden now says, well, now they've, they've never had the counterspell in their hand if they're paying attention. So I think that's the easiest example there where I will play games specifically in paper, but on Magic Online, it's probably the easiest because I don't accidentally tap and then untap. I just always try to tap correctly is just repping cancel. And it's like right from turn three, if I don't have a three drop, I'll make sure I play my double blue so that I can rep cancel. And then turn four, turn five, whatever I'm not playing a spell, I will always try to leave as much blue up as possible. Um, or a mix of obviously like you want a rep that you have, you know, a black removal spell at instant speed or whatever, but it's that double blue that people are afraid of all the time and repping that counter spell can really get into somebody's head occasionally. And if you can bait your opponent into playing their second best creature before their best creature, right? And then all of a sudden now, you know, it's up, right? Like your opponent knows you don't have a counter spell because you didn't counter it. Um, you maybe take them off curve for a turn or two or maybe make them play a little suboptimally while you're continuing to build a pressure or, or um, you know, attack in the air or something like that and putting that pressure on game state wise while they're playing around a counter spell that you've repped but you might not necessarily have. You can do this with nearly anything that's instant speed if you know the format. So played Dominaria recently. If if you're playing a white deck, there's no reason not to leave up white and a colorless open to pretend like you have Gideon's Reproach. Because you could, and it might affect how they're going to attack. There's another format where there was a double white spell where target player sacrifices an attacking creature. I think that was in Origins. Whenever I played Origins, if I was playing white and I could cast a spell and I was going to have mana left over, you'd better believe it was double white every time because I, I want them to have to think about that and worry it. Now, they're going to suss out that you don't have it relatively quickly, which may even make it better when you draw it in some cases. But again, bear in mind, all of this is stuff that we're talking about a 0.5% increase in your gameplay. There's a lot of other places you can get better, but knowing what's in the format and then being able to represent some of that is usually a pretty good idea. There are also times where, and I, I think we're getting a little advanced here, like, well, they know and I know that I know they could know, but there's times where I actually have a spell. I know I'm not going to cast it the next turn, so I'll tap out to represent that I don't have it to sell the idea that th there's no way he could have a counter spell. Like, it, it's got to be really weird circumstances where I've kind of, you know, seen their hand, know that they can't play anything next turn, but there, there's scenarios where I'll tap out and they'll be like, there's no way they'd tap this way if they actually had a murder. It's safe for me to put this enchantment on this guy now that I've kind of thought they've had. And it's not going to break the game when they finally do it. And then I just get to untap and murder it and get all the value and not have to stress about it. So like, you can go many layers deep with this, but I think step one is being aware of what's available in the colors that you're playing at instant speed. And then when you have a choice to leave mana up, leave up mana that could confuse an opponent that's paying attention or at least make them worry about something. Yeah. There, there's times like I have certainly attacked a 3-2 into a 2-2 with a combat trick in hand. And then after my opponent's blocked, decided not to use it because they've got all this mana up. And I'm like, I know what they could have. And if I go for the trick here and they have any of that, I'm wrecked. So like just leaving the right thing up can certainly be an issue. And in the scenario Dave's describing, if if he's playing a blue-green deck and it's M19 and he's got two blue up and I attack my 3-2 into his 2-2, I'm totally fine using my sure strike. But you change that to green and a blue, I'm probably just going to let that trade happen and end up choking on my combat trick, even if he doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a bluff that everybody does or a lot of players do naturally now. Right? It's just build it into your repertoire that 
do it all the time. You know, leading on black, if you're playing blue-black and Dominaria, is great because you rep Fungal Infection right from the get-go, right? Whereas leading on blue doesn't do anything. So, like, leading on those different colors where you have the opportunity where it's not detrimental to your gameplay, I think that will gain you a small edge. And, you know, in a game of edges, right, every edge counts. So I'm I'm all for things like that. But repping counterspell is very easy in a format with a double blue counterspell like cancel or bone to ash or whatever things like that and there's there frequently are somewhat playable counterspells in double blue um in a lot of formats agreed now the one place i think people bluff too much and that i take issue with and and really want to get this out there is holding lands um absolutely there's a lot of people that always hold one land in hand or will even get to where they hold two or three and uh, yes, there are exceptions and there are some reasons why you should hold an extra land in your hand. I'm not talking about those. So if you have a Tormenting Voice in the deck, you have a Macabre Waltz in the deck, you're concerned that your opponent might have a Mind Rot and you've already got seven lands in play. Sure, these are all valid reasons to hold land. I'm not talking about that one. I'm talking about the one where you top deck a land, you're empty handed, and you hold it. I have gotten so wrecked by doing that in the past that I don't even think about it anymore. I just play out all my lands. And the, the reason it could get you is there are times where you have card draw in the in your deck. So um, imagine you're on, you know, six lands. You're holding a land instead of playing the seventh. Then you draw a divination. You cast it. You draw another land and an awesome five drop. Well, if you just played the land you had the turn before, now you could slam that five drop. But because you didn't, now you have to sit with it in your hand again. The reason I argue so much about not holding those is you can you can sort of bluff your opponent for one turn with that, but immediately after that turn, the entire value of it is gone, and they're going to assume that you're on lands. There's I, I cannot tell you how many times I have cast a Skin Witch when my opponent has one card in hand, and I'm like, let's go ahead and get that land out of your hand. And like, it's almost 99 times out of 100, they're just sitting there holding a land. And I know they're holding a land... And I don't care. I don't have anything else to do with the mana. I just like that hurts people so much more than it helps that you will get better at magic if you just play out all of your lands. Now, I know you have a perspective where you're like, it's okay to hold one. You've mentioned that sometimes for like one turn and then start playing them out. That's gotten me enough that I just don't do it anymore. I think I think the reason I'm okay with it is because it plays like you would have a counterspell or a trick. Right, like you, you, you top deck a counter spell. You can't play anything this turn. You can rep that for for a single turn. But the 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 moment your opponent does something and you don't counter it or you don't murder it or you don't use your combat trick, then then it's up. Right, like you might as well just play that out. The other reason why I'm okay with that is unless it's that very specific scenario where you have card draw that draws you a land plus a castable spell. That is kind of the only time that that one single land for one turn kind of punishes you, right? Where it's like divination into land plus a five drop, and you're like, I'm a mana short because I didn't play this, and I can't play two lands in a turn. But the one land doesn't punish you from hitting your land, or from like being short on mana. Otherwise, like if you draw if you draw Macabre Waltz, you can still play that land because you're not, right? Like if, if you need to, let's say, you can still play that land and you're not because you're not going to draw another land. Soul Salvage or, is or a good soul, example. Soul Salvage is a better example because Macabre Waltz you have to discard. So let's say Soul Salvage, right? Like, I still have that opportunity to play that land because it's the only one in my hand and still play Soul Salvage and be able to cast another thing that turn. The only time where it's not is where you're drawing extra cards. Yeah. And you might have drawn an extra land, right? So so that's fine. So play it out in the case of if you have divinations and stuff like that in your deck. But the second you start holding two, now you're starting to put yourself behind. Yeah. Um, and, and you don't want to do that. Like... If you miss a land drop because you didn't play a land, you can still potentially catch up if you don't draw multiple lands. Um, I, I think I'm okay with that, but at once once you've passed one turn holding that land, there's really no value to it anymore, right? Because you're going to assume that your opponent played a spell the previous turn and that you should have countered it because it's your it's their only card in their hand and it's the only card in your hand. Like, why wouldn't you counter it, right? Or if they attack and you don't use the card in your hand as a combat trick, then they know it's not a combat trick, right? Like, there's just very little value. And the longer that card stays in your hand, the more likely it is that your opponent picks up on the fact that it's nothing. Yeah. So, so. I, I think I'm with Dave. It might be okay to hold one in some circumstances 
just don't do it if you have any card draw in the deck. And by that, I mean specifically like just raw card draw, like divination, inspiration, things like that. You'll, yep. You're way better off just playing it out. If you do top deck a land and you're going to make an attack, by all means, make the attack first and then play the land second main or hold it for a turn if that's what you want to do. I'm not saying if you top deck a land, you should slam it on the table and then attack. Like make them at least be worried that you drew something. Um, but I, I, I just in general, like I've, I've seen people that are sitting there holding a hand of three lands and you, you can see it particularly on paper coverage, which I know isn't our thing, but like they'll, they'll lay it on the table and then lift it up and look at it and lay it back down and carefully consider it at the end of the turn. And I'm like, you're just wasting everybody's time. And like your opponent, if they're, they're worth anything, just knows you're sitting there on nothing. Cause you, if you had a counter spell, you'd have countered this. And like, there's times where, you know, I'm about to play a creature and, you know, chat's like, hey, they could have a removal spell. Are you sure you want to play that one first? I'm like, if they had a removal spell, they top decked it because I just made an attack and used a combat trick. And if they had murder, they'd have murdered this right then. And they didn't. So I don't have to play around anything. And like, I, I can still remember in, you know, paper games I've played at GPs before, like I'll, you know, re- wreck my opponent. And then they they show me their three cards and like, yeah, I was holding land. And I, I'm too nice a guy to say, yeah, I know, but I did. <laughs> yeah. It's just after your opponent goes through a few turns of not doing anything in a game where you're winning, it's just like, this just, just doesn't make any sense. It again, go back to that, tell a, a story that's believable, right? I, it's very believable that I could have top decked a counter spell because I can't play it on my turn. I have to wait for you to do something before I counter it. Is it believable that I just top decked four cards in a row and I can't do anything at all with them? And I'm getting beat down in the face by a 3-4 flyer that I should have been able, like I should have killed long ago because it's going to win the game? That's not believable at all. Yeah. Unless you splashed a, a third color and you, you're short on that and it's not really a splash because you have four of those cards in your deck. Yeah, that, that may be a scenario, right? That's it, a deck builder. You... That's you're selling the story that I'm a terrible deck builder, and I'm okay with my opponent believing that too. Sure. Is is that a valid bluff where you you like bluff that your color screwed? No, I don't think that's what I'd go after. Okay, good. Um, one of my favorite bluffs, though, I think, is um, sequencing. It's not really a bluff, but it's there, there's two types of them. One is obviously like playing into counter spells and playing into removal spells by leading with a creature that is worse than my best creature or potentially leading with my best creature as if it is my second best creature. Um, those ones aren't necessarily, they're not really bluffs, but they kind of fall into that, that same space of deception. Um, you know, quite frequently your opponent will just snap off a counter spell in your second best creature and they're okay with that because they don't know what could be worse than that. Um, but just, just kind of keep that in mind where, um, playing things out of sequence might be advantageous to you and might force an, an error from your opponent. My other favorite type of bluff, and, and this is for anybody that's played in a format with, uh, with board wipes or wraths is to play a little possum, play a little rope-a-dope with your opponent and slow your curve down and hope that your opponent goes too far, um, and you get to get him with a wrath. So this is a very specific type of bluff, but, um, against an opponent that's not paying any attention, you can kind of really get them. And I, I think, you know, to some players, this is pretty obvious, but I think to players that are maybe new to arena um, or magic in general might not recognize this where, you know, you have the the wrath in hand and you have, you know, you're one short on your mana to cast it. You just need to play enough to hold, slow your opponent down from killing you, but enough that they need to go wider than you to try to put the pressure on you. And then hopefully you hit that fifth land and you can wipe them out, right? Um, it, it plays really well if you have things like card draw, like divinations that you can do on turn three or turn four to make it look like you're trying to look for something. Um, and your opponent's going to try to put pressure on you to punish you. Doesn't quite work as much when you're you're playing green-white and your opponent knows that you have the ability to curve out and you should be curving out because you have a bunch of cheap creatures. Um, but in that case, sometimes you have to sacrifice you know, some of your weaker creatures in order to try to five for three your opponent or something like that i think that's my favorite opportunity to bluff but it's also the easiest you just have to be aware that if your opponent picks up on that they might just not commit anything to the board and they're just like well i've got three creatures you've got one i'm gonna beat you down before you get an opportunity to cast your wrath so you better cast it now yeah 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 i think wrath is a good one to to kind of understand how that works 
Um, I, I still think like the attacking into stuff and representing a combat trick it, in regards to that semi bluff is the biggest one for me. It's like, yep. well, I've got this thing I could use here, but I really don't want to. I'm going to see if they make me do it. And if they don't, I'll just cast this other thing. And again, this, the semi-bluff is the safest bluff, right? That's why it's the easiest bluff. It's it's the um, the best risk-to-reward ratio because either way, you don't lose. As long as, again, as long as you're okay with both sides of the equation. If you're okay if they don't call and okay if they call, then that is a very good opportunity to semi-bluff. Now, let's get into a little bit of mechanics of bluffing because we are living in a digital world. Mm-hmm. F, F4 is my best friend when I'm magic onlining. It's the way to pretend that you don't have anything when you have a thing. Yes. And I have used this many times to get opponents to attack in when I have a card like Gideon's Reproach. Uh, if you F6, it passes your turn. Now, I play with all of the stops set on Magic Online. I know some people set the stops specifically. I play with every single one of them and then use F4 religiously. F4 in Magic Online passes until your opponent does something to which you could respond, right? So if if we get to their turn, and I know I have a Gideon's Reproach, and I know I'm going to use it if they attack, I love just pressing F4. So they're like, oh, the opponent is f 6 I'm clear, I'll go ahead and swing in. And that's where I'm like, oh, now it's giving me an opportunity to respond. Let's get you with this. I'll also use that when I have combat tricks and I'm attacking. Like, it, you have to be careful because, like, if your opponent doesn't do anything, it may skip through your second main. Uh, so there's also times I'm jamming F3 to make sure I don't get there. And I'm not going to suggest that a lot of people try this fast and loose with the keyboard. But if you don't have a creature to play second main, you can attack an F4. Your opponent will assume that you've f 6 block and all of a sudden you've got an opportunity to to use a trick or do something else there so getting comfortable with those keys in magic online can be a big deal if you want to sell it in arena you're going to have to go into full control mode if you literally don't have it because if your opponent sees that the game is not stopping for you they know you don't have anything in hand it's not a matter of bluffing it's the the program is literally telling them that i believe it's control and shift because i had to do that today to sell that bluff Mm-hmm. My fingers just kind of um, naturally pushed them. I think it's just control, just temporarily. A control shift, I think, is permanent, like, full control mode. Until you click cancel. Okay. Yeah. So, like, if you're going to attack in and pretend you have a combat trick that you don't, you need to go into control mode first. Now, a, a, this is getting into, you know, well, they know, but I know territory. A particularly savvy person will notice that you haven't been playing with full control mode, and now you are. And then they're like, okay, why are they doing this? And that's all information that you have and you can use. But remember, we're in the digital world here. So it's not about like staring your opponent across the table and, you know, doing the pen and pad bluff. Uh, This this is about actually doing it mechanically. And you're going to need to do that in Arena if you're going to try to sell this. Oh, man, I forgot about the pen and paper bluff. I've done that before. Yeah, me too. Where it's like you, you your opponents like go to combat and you're like, pick up the pen and you're like, waiting for them to attack and then they attack and you snap block and use your trick. Mm -hmm. That's so good. Yeah. So bluffing full control mode in arena is tough. And the reason is, is because if you bluff it from the start of the turn, there's so many steps and phases you have to go through that it just, it's painfully obvious what you're doing. I do like the idea though of, um, you know, trying to get full control as you move into combat. Um, It's just very, very difficult to, I've done this. You just put it in full control. You swing your your people. You let them make their blocks or not, and then you can cancel it. All you need no, then. To, but to I mean, see- like, but like, how do you get there if you don't draw anything on your turn? So like, let's you top deck a land for your turn. It just skips straight to combat, right? So you have to do it before. What I've started to do is I've started to put a stop. Yep. In in my main phase instead of full control mode, because then it looks like that I have something that I could cast, whether it be a creature. Well, I guess a land you know, would also let me, I guess, you know, it would always let me play a land. So it should be fine for the most part where it, where it gets you is if you, if you top deck something that you can't cast, right? So like if you top deck a source, uh, no, not a sorcery, uh, it's better. A six mana spell spell when you have five. Exactly. A six mana spell when you have five, that is where it gets you. So it's usually pretty good about that, about not getting you. But if you, if you're afraid of that, you just put a stop in your main step, um, 
and then it'll it'll stop there and make it look like you have something to cast, and then you can go to combat. If, if if you really want to get into this, you should almost always set that stop when you're empty-handed, so that mm-hmm. when it when it gets there and you draw something, it's gonna stop in your main phase. Because again, I could have you know five swamps and a forest in play and draw a double green card, and arena would skip straight to combat there. But if I set that stop, which your your opponent doesn't know that you've necessarily set that stop, it looks like you're just rolling into your main phase. I can go into full control and attack, and all of a sudden it, it it's almost painfully obvious that i have an instant which is exactly what i need to sell in that scenario so like in in addition to using these bluffs and again i i I play magic for eight hours a day seven six days a week i usually get into a scenario where i i bluff i don't know like two times a day is huge that's a big bluff day and i'm talking about real bluffs where i legitimately don't have anything the semi bluff i'm probably rolling once every three hours or so and and even that's not that often, right? So no, like I'm, I'm doing it frequently, especially in limited. I think like the semi bluff, where if I look at my opponent's side of the yeah. table and they have a creature, I'm okay with removing, versus playing like not developing my board. I'm I'm frequently making that attack. Yeah, I, I don't even know that that's a semi bluff. I I think of those as like it's still not great for me if you block. I really yeah. don't want you to block, but if you do, I've actually got something I can do about it. As opposed yeah. to, you know, if you block, I'm just, I just threw my dude away. That yeah. one, like, I, I might do that every other day. And it, it's legitimately in those situations where it's like, well, I'm not beating that. They just slam bells and lock. I'm not getting it unless they think I have a combat trick that can kill it. So let's attack with all the four fours and see what they do. Yep. Absolutely. Um, one of the ways I like to bluff on Arena... Um, when it's on my turn and I want to bluff a counter spell, is I'll make sure just to not pass my turn automatically, right? Like I might um, make sure that I have to respond to every single spell. Um, and that's a way to like make it seem like you're making a decision whether you want to do something or not. Um, I also find it really easy to bluff if you have obviously activated abilities. Oh yeah, those like, are the best. You just It just always gives you the opportunity to stack your walking ballista if you're playing constructed. It's just like, I can always do this. Yeah, like I, I could, but I'm not gonna. Um, but it's always nice because it's a pain because you have to go through all the motions. But it just does that heavy lifting for you and your opponent doesn't know by just reading the client what you're up to. Llanowar Scout has been that for me lately in Dominaria, which is wonderful because as long as it's sitting there untapped, I could tap it even if I don't have a land in hand. So it it, it sells the idea that I have something when I want it to do that. And if my opponent's paying attention, it could also make them think that I don't have anything when, in fact, I do have an instant and they don't yep. know. There's times where um, I've, I've done this quite a bit. Like, let, I'm going to set up a, a, a weird scenario, but let's say I cast a two drop and I do have that fungal infection, but I don't want them to know I have that fungal infection because I'm not going to use it on my turn. I'll cast the two drop and then very quickly go over to that, to that end of turn toggle button and click it. I'll do that while the spell is resolving and it'll skip right through my turn. So it looks like I don't have anything else that I could be playing. And then when they play their Knight of New Benalia, they're quite surprised to find out that in fact, I did have the fungal infection. I, you know, I could have used it before. So like little things like that with the interface can kind of help you sell, sell that story. And again, I don't want to overemphasize it. I do think it's worth doing an episode about to talk, but we're talking about, you know, very low percentage gain here. But man, when it works and you need it to, that's where it feels so good, where you win that game that you just weren't going to get otherwise. And I, I, I do think that Magic can be a game of, of small edges. And it's very satisfying to be able to add this to your toolkit, pull it out and use it, even if it's once a week that, that you have the opportunity to do this and you're able to pull it off. Like That's a game you weren't going to win otherwise. So you, take this and use with it as you will. Use your powers for good, not for evil. Exactly. If you can take a game that you were zero percent to win and win, like you're just gaining free percentage points there, right? There's no risk to you, and those are the best bluffs. As we said earlier, the best bluffs are the bluffs where you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. There's also the bluffs where you don't realize you're bluffing. I've I've done this before. Those are called mistakes where you just like I've absolutely done this where there's a creature that I just didn't recognize had reach and swung a flyer into it so confidently that my opponent didn't block it. And I'm like, I didn't have anything there. 
like I'm half paying attention to the game, half paying attention to chat. I just swing my Drake into their, you know, giant spider and they don't block it. I'm like, what just happened? Why did they take that? It's like, I sold that so well because I believed it myself. The the best bluff is the bluff you believe yourself. Um, I remember once I was playing poker and I misread my hand. I thought I had clubs when I actually had spades. I thought I flopped the nut flush and I played the entire hand like I had the nut flush and my opponent folded on the river. And then I double checked my hand like I always do. Like, yeah, you know, like nice hand. I looked at my hand and I'm like, oh, <laughs> I think I just peed a little. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, and but the but I would not have sold the bluff so hard if I hadn't believed it myself. Um, and that's where I go back to telling a story, right? Was, I'm playing the hand straight up. I'm playing like I have the nut flush here. Like, I just want this pot. Just give me my chips and I'll go on my way. And the story was a hundred percent true. I just didn't, I just didn't realize it was false. And yeah. those are the best. Can confirm. Can confirm. Well, that was a, that was a great episode. Yeah. I had wanted to get in some stuff here about bad cards and like situational cards and skill tester cards, but we ended up having a, a full discussion about bluffing. Maybe we can add that on the docket for next week. Sounds great. We'll talk about bad cards and why you should stop playing bad cards. You, the general you, not you specifically i had to main deck a divest today i felt so dirty i accidentally main deck a navigator's compass in a two-color deck the other day and i felt dirty you know what was hilarious though is i said when i put it in there like i just needed another playable the deck was so good it was just like all of the legends you can imagine but i got into black white just a little too late and i legitimately had nothing else i could put in because my my sideboard's all these green cards because I thought I was green for so long. I was like, well, the good news is I'll always have it turn one every game. And I think I did. And it was actively amazing, like just ripping their hand apart. And I was like, the only games I didn't have it in my opener, I never drew it. So it, it, that was the best divest I've ever played. But I know the card's not going to do that every time. All right, we'll throw it in the docket for next week if we uh, if we have an opportunity to talk about it. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to Face to Face Games for the support and the host. Uh, if you want to check us out on Patreon, you can do that. It's uh, patreon.com slash menfrommoto. And Travis, where can they catch you streaming Dominaria slash Triple M and Cat this week, I guess? Yeah, it's going to be M and Cat tomorrow. I'm excited uh, to try that out again. It's at twitch.tv slash simulan. And I am at twitch.tv slash D civilian, that's D S A V I L L I A N, and I'm on Twitter. You can also follow Men for Moto on Twitter. That's uh, twitter.com slash Men for Moto. Hit us up there and tell us about your best bluff stories. No bad beat stories, though, just bluff stories. All right. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time. Adios.